0: Hello, everybody. This is Dan Mulholland, and with me is Henry Cassell on today's Health Law Expressions podcast, What You Know Will Hurt You. We're going to be talking today about a landmark United States Supreme Court decision handed down on June 1, 2023, United States et al. XRL Schutte et al. versus Supervalue Inc. It was a case that will have profound implications for any False Claims Act case in the future. And in particular, it defined how the scienter requirement, that is the requisite knowledge or mental state that a defendant has to possess in order to be shown to have violated the False Claims Act, is going to be analyzed by the courts. But it also raises a whole host of questions that the court left unresolved in terms of some very key issues that affect Medicare reimbursement. So, Henry, why don't you describe what happened in this case and how it ended up in the United States Supreme Court? My pleasure, Dan. Uh, and going back to my old days as
1: a pharmacist, which were a long, long time ago, pharmacies, and and, and there were two uh, drug chains involved, Supervalue and Safeway. And pharmacy chains find themselves competing with other chains. And other people come up with programs, and, and they feel that in order to be competitive, they have to Uh, meet those uh, programs. So uh, there was a period of time where there was a competitor who had created a program where they discounted a lot of drugs and the discount programs became very popular. And so both Super Value and Safeway designed their own uh, discount programs. And uh, these are for primarily patients who paid in cash, not through insurance. And for some of these years that these programs were in effect the programs were provided a majority of the prescriptions that were provided by both of these drug chains the example that was given in the court was in one that for one particular drug the uh, if you were in this discounted program you paid $10 for 94% of their cash sales for a 90-day period were for $10. But when it came to charging the Medicare program, Medicare paid on a different process. They paid the usual and customary price. And so the usual and customary price for those that same drug for that same period of time was $108. So they billed Medicare 108 bucks when they were paying uh when when private pay patients who were in one of these discounted programs were paying $10. So the question is, how do you justify that differential in uh, the amount that you're seeking payment from Medicare versus what you are seeking payment from a majority, actually a, a significant majority of people that are paying cash for the same medication. And the justification goes back to a 2007 Supreme Court case called Safeway Insurance Company of America versus Burr, And in this case, now this case did not involve the false claims act, involved the fair credit reporting act. And it was a
0: different Safeway.
1: And and yeah, this is not totally, I'm sorry, it's Safeco, not Safeway. So uh, the SafeCo case was the 2007 Supreme Court case that uh, was used as the justification for the defendants in this case for both drug chains in this case. What they did is they were able to say to the Seventh Circuit, look, federal the the federal agencies at issue the the ones that we build for these medications always have the right to come back and say you. You billed us too much or we should not have been paid. We should have only paid the same amount of the discounted what private pay patients, cash payments were paying in one of these discount programs. But when it comes to the False Claims Act, the False Claims Act was never intended to be used in this manner. Under the Safeco case, again, decided by the Supreme Court in 2007, in order for the False Claims Act to have been violated. There should have been a prefer, a precedential appellate court decision or a clear regulatory definition of the term usual and customary and so that we have an objective standard to know whether or not we're violating the False Claims Act. Absent that level of definitive definition of what that term means the false claims act should simply not apply so that the and the seventh circuit said you know what you're right we think that the uh safe code decision requires some form of objective standard and as long as you can as long as these drug companies can point to an objective standard for to support their claim that was submitted to the government even if it was for a substantially greater amount of money that shouldn't violate the False Claims Act. The problem is that the um, the drug companies had information at the time that the claims were submitted that they should have known that the usual and customary was the lower discounted rate. So here, the issue was not what the u- usual and customary rate should be, not what the the the, the 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 drug companies did or didn't do are wrong at this point. It's what their knowledge was there's when they submitted the claims and whether or not that was sufficient to violate the False Claims Act, because both of these cases are based on the False Claims Act. They're both key TAMs, so that there are private individuals who are trying to Bring these cases on behalf of the government and obtain a portion of the, um, of the recovery. And given the fact that these are two national chains that submitted a lot of claims to Medicare and Medicaid, there would be a significant amount of money at issue under the False Claims Act, much more so three times the amount of the claim plus the per claim penalty. The amount of money at issue if a False Claims Act case is permitted to go forward is much more significant than if the government agencies at issue had simply tried a recruitment action.
0: Yeah, so needless to say, neither the government nor the relators like the result of the Seventh Circuit, and they appealed to the United States Supreme Court. When the court issued its opinion on June 1, 2023, it was a nine to zero decision, which is almost unheard of uh, in the current composition of the Supreme Court. And they ruled in favor of the government and against the respondent uh, drugstore chains. They focused on the so-called site enter requirement in the False Claims Act. As Henry just described, the Seventh Circuit said, hey, if there's a objectively reasonable interpretation that you could come up with after the fact to show that somebody could have thought that usual and customary meant your uh, retail rates rather than the discount rate given to these membership programs, that uh, you don't have the requisite SciEnter. You weren't knowingly submitting false claims to the government. The Supreme Court said, no, that's wrong. Uh, and in the heart of the case, it was on page eight of the slip opinion from the Supreme Court, they said the FCA's SciEnter requirement, that is, the knowledge that a defendant has to have in order to be shown to have violated the False Claims Act refers to the respondent's knowledge and subjective beliefs not what an objectively reasonable person may have known or believed and they said that facial ambiguity in the in terms of the definition of usual and customary in this case alone is not sufficient to preclude a finding that the respondents knew their claim was false now there were some facts that didn't help the respondent drugstore chains in this case among them, the Supreme Court pointed to some evidence that had come out already and was uh, addressed by the lower courts that um one of the chains said that they were going to have this um, discount program on a stealthy basis, uh, and there were emails saying, "Don't put anything in writing about this." so you know, both drugstore chains arguably or their employees were shooting themselves in the foot in terms of saying hey, you know, maybe there's some uh, things that we're doing that aren't totally uh, according to Hoyle, but let's keep it quiet. Never a good idea when you get an email from somebody saying don't put this in writing uh, because usually that person, you know, isn't uh, a real high wattage individual in terms of their IQ because they already put it in writing telling you don't put it in writing. But the, be that as it may, that was were just some things that the court observed. The court then said that, the False Claims Act is largely a fraud statute so that they will use the common law definition of fraud and the mental state that a defendant in a case alleging fraud has to be shown to have in order to show that they're trying to defraud somebody. And they actually quoted an English decision from 1889, Derry versus Peak, uh, where um, a court in England articulated a rule saying fraud is proved when it is shewn, S-C-H-E. WN, you know, the British have really cool words, uh, that a false representation has been made knowingly or without belief in the truth or reckless, careless, whether it be true or false. I mean, as George Bernard Bernard Shaw said, the United States and uh, England are two countries separated by a common language. But you have to give it to uh, the Brits in this one. They had some pretty cool language in that uh, case. So that in the absence of any statutory text to the contrary, the Supreme Court said that Congress intends to incorporate the well-settled meaning of a common law term. So in this case, the Supreme Court laid out at page 10 of the slip opinion, specific guidance that's going to be quoted now for decades in terms of the three standards that would have to be shown in terms of whether somebody possesses the requisite scienter or knowledge to be able to be shown to have violated a False Claims Act. They said, first of all, Actual knowledge, which is the uh, first type of sci you can have to violate the False Claims Act, refers to whether a person is aware of information. In this case, they said they might have been aware of the case that um, maybe they were doing something that wasn't completely up and up. Second, the term "deliberate ignorance encompasses defendants who are aware of a substantial risk that their statements are false, but intentionally avoid taking steps to confirm the statement's truth or falsity. And third, the term reckless disregard" regard captures defendants who are conscious of a substantial and unjustifiable risk that their claims are false, but submit the claims anyway. Some courts have described that as the head in the sand standard. So uh, they're looking in False Claims Act cases based on the Supreme Court's instruction in this case to whether or not the defendants have a culpable state of mind. Uh, and that it doesn't matter what the defendants might have thought or come up with as a post-hoc rationalization after they submitted a claim, but what they thought at the time they were submitting the claims. So that when they presented the claims, the key is, what did they think at that time? And this, they said that the Seventh Circuit uh, was wrong because um, it, it's not a question of what other people might think was an honest mistake, but rather the subjective judgment of the individual submitting the claim. So, the court summed it up by saying, under the False Claims Act, petitioners can establish scienter by showing that the respondents either actually knew that their prices were not the usual and customary prices when they reported them to the government in submitting claims to Medicare and Medicaid, and that they were aware of substantial risk that their higher retail prices were not usual and customary and intentionally avoided learning whether those reports are accurate, uh, or that they were aware that there was a risk but submitted the claims anyway. So that's where the court teed it up, saying we're not gonna decide what the term usual and customary means, and we're not gonna decide whether or not these drugstore chains submitted false claims. We're just saying this is how the lower court has to analyze whether or not the defendants possessed the requisite cyaners. the case was kicked back to the district court for further proceeding. So Henry, the case is good in terms of saying what cyanur means, but it leaves open a whole host of issues in terms of what usual and customary means and some other things that flow through this, correct? Right. As you said, the the frustrating, I think the court was accurate in,
1: they said that what's at issue is what the uh, pharmacies thought when submitting the claims, not what they may have thought after the claims were submitted. To accept the uh, pharmacies argument would essentially read reckless disregard and deliberate ignorance out of the statute. So there is, I mean, you can't, ar- it's hard to argue with their analysis. The frustrating thing is they recognize that the term usual and customary is, quote, less than perfectly clear, end of quote, which is an understatement. And um, they said it would have been a forgivable mistake if the drug, company, if the pharmacies had honestly read the phrase, usual and customary, as their retail and not their discounted price. So what this does is it allows the relator or the government to essentially get beyond a motion to dismiss simply by arguing that they either knew, should have known, or acted in deliberate ignorance. Then you have to go to discovery to determine what they actually knew or didn't know or what they chose to ignore when submitting the claims, which means you end up in discovery. And in a case like this, where you have a national chain, a lot of people involved, and there are going to be differences of opinion within that organization as to what the terms usual and customary mean, you're going to have a tremendous amount of cost involved in electronic discovery, in discovery in general. And, uh, it's going to open a lot of healthcare organizations that discount anything for one company and maybe not the government, uh, because they have an honest belief that By charging what they're charging, their claims to the government are accurate, but they're going to have to prove that, which creates a lot of potential cost and and aggravation. And as many of the amicus briefs pointed out, if they had gone with a standard that the False Claims Act should only be violated if there was a clear standard, and it was, uh, sub- and the claims were submitted in violation of that clear standard. It could have cut down on the number of key tam suits and false claims act cases, but that's not what this case was about. That weren't the, That's not the facts in this case, and that's not what the Supreme Court held.
0: Yeah. Example as to how this case may have opened the floodgates for a lot more ketam activity. Uh, it's quite common that hospitals will discount laboratory tests for cash-paying patients below what the Medicare fee schedule would pay. The reason is large um, companies like Lab, LabCorp, or LabCorp or Quest uh, have you know big volume discounts that they can offer. So in order to compete <laughs> with those labs, the hospital may say, hey, for certain cash patients, we're going to reduce our um, price to compete with those larger laboratories or reference laboratories. The concept of customary charges comes in there. Going back all the way to 1973, the Medicare program adopted a rule, or Congress adopted a rule, that reimbursement to Medicare providers uh, will be based on the lower of the reasonable cost of those services or the customary charges for those services. Now, this rarely, if ever, comes up these days, except maybe uh, in the context of, say, a critical access hospital uh, that's still cost-based. But um, the concept of customary charges is actually defined by a formula in the uh, Provider Reimbursement Manual. In uh, Section 2600, Chapter 26 of the Medicare Provider Reimbursement Manual, you'll see a definition of customary charges. So, There is at least some way that a hospital, if it was choosing to discount uh, laboratory services, for instance, to cash-paying patients, uh, can try to defend itself by saying, well, we've done the analysis, and we think even though for a small number or percentage of our patients, the price is going to be discounted below what Medicare would pay, our customary charge is still an amalgam of what we accept from insurance companies and others, So therefore, we're okay. However, since this case is going to probably provoke more people to come forward and file KETAM cases, if your hospital is in a situation where you may have decided to discount payments to cash-paying patients or charges to cash-paying patients below what a Medicare or Medicaid fee schedule would be, you probably would do well to take a look at that, do the analysis that's outlined in uh, Section 2604, the provider reimbursement manual. I won't bore you with it now, but uh, we'll have that available on our website uh, and say, all right, can we defend our decision to discount to this small percentage of our patients and still say that our customary charges are what our charge master says rather than this discounted rate, and therefore uh, we're still entitled to get payment under the Medicare fee schedule. That's just one small example of how this can come about, but Uh, When we were reading the Supreme Court case, we dusted off this old provider reimbursement manual section and said, yeah, there's some definition here. It probably doesn't apply to the drugstore chains that we're talking about in the Supreme Court case, but it might help hospitals. But if you don't do that and you just go ahead and uh, discount willy-nilly and have communications within your organization that can kind of undercut your argument later on if you get sued, then you're going to be in a worse position. So you're better off taking a look at your discounting policies and your discounting procedures now and say, can we justify it under what Medicare has already said would be customary charges. And the more you can do to enhance your compliance process and and,
1: uh, utilize your compliance process anytime there's a billing question that arises, especially when the claim is being submitted to Medicare, the better off you are. But again, just the fact that you have to dig through some reg- sub-regulatory guidance to find a provision in the provider manual is what a lot of the amicus uh, were arguing against, is that if we're going to, if you're going to subject a provider to the cost and the aggravation and the expense of defending themselves from a, a False Claims Act case which is a case in which you're saying you defrauded the government uh, there should be clear regulatory guidance or an, uh, they even argue an appellate court decision because uh, they, they, uh, they point out that even district courts are not bound within the same district to follow another district court opinion that Without that kind of clear guidance, the False Claims Act should not apply. Not that the federal government agencies don't have the right to try to recoup an amount if they believe they were charged greater than what should have been charged uh, under, uh, for the usual and customary amount. But the fact that you should limit the False Claims Act to, to, claims that are clearly fraudulent and where someone either knew or should have known when they submitted the claim that what they were doing was inappropriate. And again, the way in which you prove that knowledge is to have as robust a compliance process as you can.
0: And Henry, I agree with you, but if that was the case and everything was crystal clear, there'd be no need for us. Thank you very much, folks. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you.